the best thing about being a girl is now I don't have to pretend to be a boy. The best thing about being a girl is now I don't have to pretend to be a boy. Well, so read the cover page on this recent January edition of National Geographic. The quote is from Avery Johnson, a nine-year-old from Kansas City, Missouri, who also happened to be the first transgender individual ever to appear on the cover of that publication. Now, many would equate National Geographic with, you know, with rhino poaching or global warming, but in the age of bathroom bills and NCAA boycotts, it just goes to show how mainstream the transgender conversation has become. And of course, this all comes on the heels of of changing attitudes towards same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. It was, after all, less than two years ago that our nation's highest court handed down that landmark Obergefell versus Hodges decision which legalized same-sex marriage across the land. Now, homosexual plot lines are, are not only a daily staple of primetime TV, but for the first time ever, they're making their way into a broad-release Disney movie with the much-anticipated release even this week of Disney, or rather Beauty and the Beast, And to quote the director of Beauty and the Beast, the movie, quote, makes something really subtle and delicious out of it. Delicious out of those same-sex relationships. And of course, not all parents agree, which would explain the growing petitions and the protest. But I just raise those examples to point out that we are in the midst of the greatest cultural experiment we've ever anticipated, ever tried in Western society. And, and that's not cheap hyperbole. That's not scaremongering. To call it a cultural experiment is just to borrow the very language that the Supreme Court justices used themselves when they passed that landmark 5-4 same-sex decision. No culture has sought to redefine marriage as we are the very bedrock of all societal institutions. And no culture has sought to redefine the very nature of what it means to be male and female until today. Until today. And because this experiment is couched in terms of of civil rights and equality, anyone who would oppose the normalization of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender lifestyles, right, LGBT lifestyles. Well, they're branded, what they're branded a bigot, you know, a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, someone who's on the, the opposite side, the wrong side of history. And so what we're coming to find is that what many find so offensive about Christianity is not the cross. It's our own sexual ethic, which is why so many mainline Protestant denominations are seeking to reinterpret what the church has always understood and taught the Bible to believe. Or others are calling just to reject the Bible and its teaching altogether. All right, so as Christians this morning, how do we respond to all of this? And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning and sort of this third and this final installment of this gender series. And I raise this final talk not in any way out of fear or surprise at where the culture is going. We've got to recognize when we look at the scriptures, ever since the Tower of Babel, every culture, every culture reflects coordinated attempts to celebrate what the Bible calls sin. And if we have any confusion about that in our own culture, we can just look back to the 19th century, the 18th century, and we can think about slavery. And thus, we're called to do what every Christian generation must do. We're called to evaluate our culture in light of the Scriptures, in light of the Scriptures. And yet, as we do this, as we do it this morning, we've got to recognize that this current debate surrounding gender and sexuality isn't something that's simply out there, outside our walls. It's something many of us face with friends and relatives and colleagues that we love. Even more, I know from talking with some of you that there are those in this room this morning 
who, who live within an unsettledness, who live with attention regarding their own gender and their own sexual desires. Some here will feel like gender exiles. And thus we go to God's word, a word that speaks with both clarity and compassion so that we might, as Christians, also know what it would look like to persevere in following Jesus. And so that's what we want to do first. We want to look at what God's word has to say, particularly on the topic of transgenderism and on homosexuality. For when it comes to the issues, the Bible speaks with clear conviction. And yet when it comes to people, the Bible also speaks with great compassion. Now, Christians in the past haven't always modeled this well. We must do better. Like an acquaintance of mine put it well, he said, while we may not have patience for secular agendas, we must have patience for struggling people. All right, just a reminder to parents, all right, I don't intend to be needlessly salacious, but I do this morning intend to be honest. And if at any point you just feel you need to step out, you kept your kids, and you're thinking, oh, maybe that wasn't the best decision, feel no embarrassment about that, parents will choose to introduce these topics at different times and in different ways, and I respect that. But if you're new to Christianity altogether, well, I just got to say you've stepped into a Christian church on a very unusual Sunday morning. This isn't what we typically do. Contrary to what you might think, the Bible is actually not preoccupied with sex. As Christians, we don't, or at least we shouldn't, have this Victorian hang-up in talking about the issues and the matters. We are addressing this topic, though, because culture has really forced it upon us. Often with the power of the courts and the federal government and the power of the government to tax and to assess penalties. So we've got to speak to these issues. Lastly, just one other word. I'm not going to be able to address every question you might have. Right, so should I address my transgender friend with the pronoun of her biological sex or of her, her chosen gender identity? Like what pronoun do I use? If I have a same-sex family member and they've invited me to the wedding, should I go? Right, we can keep going with questions, legitimate questions, questions I have convictions about, and yet we're just not going to have time to deal with all of those questions. So let me point you to a few resources to help you think more about this afterward. Rosaria Butterfield, we've mentioned her before, she's got two excellent books. Recall she was a, a liberal, sort of tenured lesbian professor at Syracuse who came out of that became a believer. She refers to that as the train wreck of her own conversion. And she writes beautifully and powerfully, just an excellent combination of, of wit and honesty and love. And I commend both of her books to you, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which is her first, and her second, Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Sexual Identity, and Union with Christ. Both these on the bookstall, I'd commend them to you. In addition to that, two books just on homosexuality, Same-Sex Attraction and the Church by Ed Shaw and Is God Anti-Gay, both written by Anglican, uh, so sort of English, Episcopalian, you can think of it like that, but written from a biblical standpoint. Both of these individuals struggle with same-sex attraction. They're also able to write honestly and clearly and very well about the matter. And then lastly, this little book, Transgenderism by Vaughn Roberts. I commend it to you. All of these are on the bookstall. I encourage you to think about picking some up as you have more conversations with one another. Okay, here's what we want to do this morning. We want to really consider two things. First, what does the Bible say? As we think about these issues, we got to start there. What does the Bible say? And then secondly, what should we then say? Very simple. Keeping it really simple this morning. What does the Bible say? And then secondly, what should we say? All right. So first, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say as we jump into these matters? Now, if you attempt to look up transgender in your Bible's concordance, I'll save you a bit of time. You're not going to find much in there. You're not going to find it in there. That doesn't mean, though, the Bible is agnostic on the matter. It actually has something to say about transgenderism from the very beginning. And so the first thing, as we think about what the Bible says, the first thing I want us to see is that gender is not a social construction, but a given of creation. Gender is not a social construction, 
but a given of creation. We've read throughout these weeks from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he closes in verse 31. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Right. Men and women jointly made in his image, which preserves our equal dignity and value and worth. Right? Nobody should be made to feel inferior because of their sex. No one should be made to feel superior because of their sex. As we said in week one, if we are made in God's image, that forever settles the question of our personal worth. And yet, while we're equal, we are not identical. Right? God made us distinct, not simply as homo sapiens or as human beings, but rather as men and women. Right? Humanity, from the very beginning, was gendered. It's gendered. Yes, gender is something that we're going to interpret. It is something we lend cultural expression to. So French men used to wear makeup and tights and wigs. I get it. Kate Moss often models in male curve-obscuring jeans. Little Wayne wraps in leopard print tights. Harry Styles of One Direction and Justin Bieber like to buy women's jeans. Right? You can call them gender benders. I don't really care. I'm not super interested in that. People can twist expressions of gender. But we have to see from the very beginning is that gender isn't something that we invent. It's not something we fully define. And part of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the Bible doesn't just recognize these distinctions. The Bible celebrates these distinctions. Because we get into Genesis 2, we see Adam and Eve, they were fully at home with their God-given gender. We read in Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We were made to delight in, not to be embarrassed of or ashamed by our gender. And from this foundation, we see that gender is a gift that God gives to every individual. As David says in Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully And wonderfully made. And yet the prevailing secular mindset is that actually gender, gender is not biological, nor is it binary, i.e. male and female. That's what's become the prevailing mindset. Starting in the late 70s, psychologists increasingly began to distinguish between sex and gender. And they would say sex is biological, it's simply a matter of chromosomes and DNA, whereas gender is psychological. It pertains to your inner sense of identity. It's going to include things like behavior and appearance. And this is what distinguishes transgenderism from intersex conditions. So transgenderism is just that umbrella term for one whose gender identity doesn't match their biological sex. But don't confuse that with intersex. Intersex is that physical condition where someone may have organs or other biological characteristics of both sexes. And so at birth, that makes it a little harder to determine whether they are male or female. So we used to use that old term hermaphrodite, but many find it outdated. Some find it offensive. And so we refer to use that word intersex now. And it it accounts for maybe 0.02% of births. And despite some of the biological ambiguity, nonetheless, as those children grow, most of them will identify as male or female. So just to be clear, intersex is a physical condition. Transgender is a psychological condition. And when it comes to gender... This is where culture has really been redefining, right, the playing field. To put it bluntly, sex is what's in your pants, gender is what's in your head. And there's not necessarily, according to culture, any correlation between those two things. 
And then you have to add to that the mix of sexual orientation, which refer to your sexual preferences when pursuing others. And so there's a common catchphrase. Sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with, whereas gender identity determines who you want to go to bed as. And your sex, i.e. your anatomy, that need not have anything to do with either Right, the slogan that sums it up is anatomy isn't destiny. Anatomy isn't destiny. Okay, that's how the world increasingly thinks about gender. And though unpopular, the Bible does simply reject this understanding. Our gender, by which when I use that word gender, I mean being created, male or female, that is a gift from God. And God gives it as a holistic gift, including our body, our sense of identity, and the roles to which God would call us. And Jesus affirms this himself in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. The, the goodness, the givenness, the fixedness of our genders. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to treat our gender as, as plastic, as malleable, as fluid, as self-defined. Now that's not to say that some of us won't feel like exiles in our own bodies. That's not to say that there are some who won't struggle with gender dysphoria to varying degrees. Yet the consistent call of Scripture is for us to embrace our sex, to fight for it, to, to not change it, and not to redefine it. Now, we're going to have more in a moment to think about how do we respond then sort of to, to those who struggle with transgenderism, but before we do that, we just need to flip now and think, okay, that's what the Bible has to say some on gender and sexuality. What does it have to say about homosexuality more in particular? And as we transition here, we've got to note the Bible has a little bit more explicitly to say. And yet, even as I say that, it may come as a surprise that there are only a handful of texts or so that deal with homosexuality. Now, that doesn't mean they're unimportant. doesn't mean we can ignore them. But it's also a good reminder to us that the Bible is not fixated upon homosexuality. Sometimes people write about Christians and they write about the Bible like the Bible is fixated upon this issue. The Bible is actually not fixated upon this issue. It's not a book about homosexuality in that sense. And yet when it speaks to it, the second thing that we need to see the Bible has to say is that same-sex sexual activity is sinful. Same-sex sexual activity is sinful. And I'm intentionally using those words, I'm not using the word homosexuality, rather, because when, when someone says, I'm gay or I'm a homosexual, they're often first and foremost making a statement about their identity, not just their sexual activity. And the problem with doing that is the Bible never defines us simply by our sexual desires. The Bible never defines us especially by our fallen sexual desires. And we don't want to confuse same-sex activity with same-sex attraction. Attraction reflects temptation, whereas same-sex activity is to act out on that temptation. So same-sex sexual activity, as we'll see, is sinful. Same-sex attraction is not. And we've got to be clear on that. Either way, I recognize, despite that clarity, what I've just said sounds hateful and bigoted to some. But the Bible's teaching, I think, is unmistakably clear in this point. And it's not because same-sex sexual activity was unheard of in the ancient world, not at all as we, as we counter it from Genesis 19 all the way through the pages of the New Testament. So the Bible's antipathy is not born out of ignorance, but born out of a concern for a violation of God's clear gender design. So we see that, for example, Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in Genesis 19, verse 4, that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, they surrounded the house and they called Lot, Abraham's nephew. They called him and they said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that word know is a common biblical way of referring to sexual relations. So just to be very clear, 
They weren't gathering around the house for a fireside chat. They weren't gathering around the house to watch the SEC championship or the Ivy League's championships, even though he dug me on it earlier. Right? That's not why they're gathering around the house. They were gathering around that house because they intended to have sex with those visitors. Now, some have suggested the sin of the people was not actually that. The sin was being inhospitable to the guests. But we know that can't be the case because you get into the New Testament, you read, for example, Jude 7, and we read there that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged, he doesn't say in inhospitality, but he says in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Right? The unmistakable point is that God takes sexual sin very seriously. He takes it very seriously. There are also multiple references in Leviticus, such as Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, just to read 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, the context of Leviticus 18 and 22, it's all about sexual sin. So Moses refers to incest. He refers to adultery. He refers to bestiality. And to those lists of sexual sins, he includes same-sex sexual acts. Now, some have attempted to redefine what the Bible has to say here by saying, well, the Bible really only condemns gay rape which is certainly a terrible thing. The Bible would condemn that. Or maybe it just condemns sort of casual, non-committed gay sex. But we just have to note the Bible's not getting that specific. Moses deals elsewhere with rape. What he's prohibiting here in Leviticus is general, consensual, homosexual activity. Now, as we've gone into Romans 1... That's one of the more sustained teachings on the topic of homosexuality. We heard Michael read it earlier, the scripture reading, how fallen humanity seeks to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because admitting a creator, you realize why no one likes to admit a creator. This is one of the great advantages of science. If we can explain away our origins, that means we're not accountable to God. But when you admit a creator, you all of a sudden become accountable to him because he made you. He's your author. He has authority over you. And so what do we do? We don't want to admit that. We seek to cover our ears. We close our eyes to the truth. And one of the ways Paul says cultures do this and people do it is by exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Romans 1, 26 to 27. Because of this suppressing the truth, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I know that reads like nails upon our cultural chalkboard. It flies in the face of how many see homosexual homosexuality not as being contrary to nature, but actually being very faithful to our own natures. But again, the Bible rejects this. Some have wondered, well, maybe contrary to nature just means contrary to their own natural inclinations. In other words, the Bible doesn't condemn all homosexual activity, but only that activity that goes against one's personal inclinations and desires. So it would be wrong for a heterosexual person to engage in homosexual sex, but it's not wrong for people inclined towards same-sex acts to sleep together. Now, maybe you've heard that, but just to be really clear, Paul isn't speaking about our subjective experience. He's referring in context to the way God made things in creation, not just how we experience it, but how God himself intended it. And the sinfulness of same-sex activity, it's further affirmed in texts like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And there's a footnote in your ESV that will note that those two words refer to the passive and active participant in same-sex acts, right? Nor thieves, 
nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, this is serious stuff. We can't ignore it. Paul's saying those who persist in unrepentant, unrepentant homosexual acts, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, this is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. It doesn't get more serious than this. Now, as an aside, I just would add that any church that would therefore condone homosexuality would seem to be a false church. For it teaches that someone, such as an unrepentant practicing homosexual, can inherit the kingdom of God when God explicitly says they can't. Such affirmation, given in the name of love, we have to recognize is the exact opposite of biblical love. For it finally leads not to reconciliation and repentance toward God, but it leads to alienation and condemnation before him. And yet, as serious as this is, we've got to recognize in those lists of sins, it's not alone in being serious. There were a list, a catalog of sins there. So Paul lists others, and while it's serious, it's just not alone in being serious. All right, but what about Jesus? He didn't explicitly mention homosexuality, and he certainly didn't make it a central point of his preaching. You know, can't we just move on? Well, that statement, again, I'm sure you've heard it, I've heard it, it's both false and misleading. It's misleading because, of course, no first century Jew was arguing for the normalization of same-sex acts. While it wasn't uncommon in Gentile cultures, it was largely unheard of in Jewish culture. So, of course, we wouldn't expect Jesus to mention it any more than we would expect him to talk about abortion or infanticide. There was just agreement on such things. But even that, I think the premise is off. It's a mistaken statement because actually Jesus does address homosexuality in a broad sense. Mark 7, 20, for example, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, etc., etc. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, that word, that Greek word for sexual immorality, it's, it's a broad term. It's really a catch-all phrase referring to any sexual activity outside the monogamous bonds of marriage, one man and one woman. So nobody, and just to be clear, I mean nobody would hear, who would have heard Jesus say that, would have doubted for a moment that when he spoke of sexual immorality, they wouldn't have thought there a moment that he was excluding homosexual acts and that exclusion. I could refer to other texts. If you look carefully at the scriptures, the weight of biblical evidence is clear. Same-sex activity is sinful. We are not, as Christians, called to embrace it. We're not called to celebrate it. We're not called to solemnize it. We're not called to approve of it, as we read in Romans one thirty-two. Rather, we are called to repent of it. That's what the Bible has to say. It is clear in its convictions to us. But what should we say? I just want to flip now to sort of the second half of the message. What do we say to all of this? The Bible's clear. What, how do we respond? What we've got to recognize is we respond that we respond with a commitment to speak in compassion and not with a sense of revulsion. Our commitment to communicate is always born and exhibited in a spirit of compassion, not revulsion. Right? They may be dressed in drag. It may be that the only thing more colorful than the clothes they're wearing is the language coming out of their mouths. But they're not freaks. They're fellow image bearers. And they deserve to be treated as image bearers. Because the reality is, LGBT people... Right? They feed their dogs, they care for their homes, they shop at grocery stores, they pay taxes just like you and me. Oftentimes, they're also just trying to make sense of their lives, just as we are going about our weeks trying to make sense of our lives. And in that sense, they're no different from us. 
And recognize as well, Christians and LGBT people actually have something in common. We both fundamentally understand what it means to be an exile. We both understand what it likes to feel, what it's like to feel as an exile. Both Christians and LGBT, LGBT people know what it's like when they look about the world and they say, yeah, you know what? This world is not my home. Something's not right. I don't fit in this world. To quote a transgender slogan, some men are born in their bodies. Others have to fight for it. Just consider that reality for a moment. Some men are born in their bodies. Others have to fight for it. Oh, friend, that should soften your heart, not harden it. It should soften your own heart. Okay, so compassion presumes we have relationships with LGBT peoples. Do you? Do you have relationships with lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender peoples? And if not, why not? Is it possible that you are inviting only some sinners into your life and not others? I mean, are they not worthy? Are they a different species of people? Are you too afraid to have them in your home and at your dinner table? And if so, why? Why would you fear such? Jesus pursued them. We're we're called to have the same approach toward LGBT peoples. Jesus pursued them. Take the those kind of outsiders is what I'm getting at. Take the sexually scandalous Samaritan woman. Right? Not only was she a Samaritan and therefore hated by Jews, loathed by them. We know that this woman traded husbands like an NFL team that was rebuilding in the offseason. That, that was her status. And yet Jesus pursued her and talked with her and did the scandalous thing. He got into her life. He pressed in. And we need to be doing that in our own relationships, in our own lives throughout the week. As a church, you know, just reflecting on what might be a way as a church that we could be a more welcoming place for LGBT peoples. Because recognize for them to step through these doors is an enormous step that most wouldn't ever dream of taking. Right? But one thing we might do, we ever do a renovation? Just put in a, a single stall restroom. Small thing we could do. Small thing we could do. But it might enable someone, might make it easier for them to come in and hear the word. And so that their bathroom choice and their gender dysphoria is not the most difficult thing for them while they're here. But they get to actually hear the word and feel welcomed in that sense. Okay, but when we speak, that's a, a bit of compassion, the, the tone we're supposed to have toward LGBT peoples. But when we speak, we have to speak in the recognition first that we're all sexually broken. We're all sexually broken. The reality is all of us have had our experience of our gender and our sexuality. That experience has been tainted by sin. So the husband who battles against same-sex attraction, the wife who struggles to respect her husband, the student that's tempted to twist her femininity or his masculinity with pornography, the young woman trying to sort out sort of wrong cultural expectations in her own femininity. Brokenness is not just what LGBT people struggle with. It's what every human being struggles with east of Eden. Every single one. And that's because our sexual brokenness is a reflection more broadly that this world we inhabit is broken. So when we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see... When our sexual desires lead us down paths of shame and confusion, when we feel that something is deeply off inside of us, we're reminded that we're not right because the world's not right. Romans 8, 20 to 21 reminds us that this world's in bondage to corruption. It's longing to be set free. And that sense of dysphoria that we can feel in our own bodies only highlights that broader dysphoria this world experiences as it groans and longs to be made complete. Which means the mere presence of desire alone, the mere presence of desire alone doesn't make an action morally right. Right? Is doesn't equate to ought. If 
my isness equates to oughtness, then there's no moral justification for why bestiality, pederasty, incest, polyamory, or a number of other sexual practices are wrong. In a fallen world, we all struggle in our brokenness with sinful inclinations, but those inclinations don't legitimize the actions. In Romans 1, Paul's point is that nature as we experience it is not nature as God intended it. So therefore, desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. Desires for things that God has forbidden, desires that all of us have, are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. We're all sexually broken. We need to recognize that. But a second thing we must say is that our sexuality isn't our identity. Secondly, our sexuality isn't our identity. The world says, it's who I am. It's who I am. The world treats us simply as the sum of our own sexual desires. A very reductionistic way to look at the human being. But it's why the, the LGBT rights issue, it's not fundamentally about sex, it's about personhood. It's about what it means to be human. And it's why suggesting that there are any limits to our sexual freedom is tantamount to tearing down our nation's most sacred altar of worship. Yet if all we are, if all we are is a composite of biology and desire, then recognize we are no more than animals. We are no different than animals. That's why I say it's reductionistic. It's actually a subhuman way to speak of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because the Bible says that we are far more than a composite of our own desires. We aren't defined by our instincts. We are defined as image bearers of a glorious and a good God. Which means being lesbian or being transgender is not one's biggest sin. Being an unbeliever is. As Rosaria Butterfield remarks in her own testimony, she says, I wasn't fundamentally saved out of homosexuality. I was saved out of unbelief. Friends, if our sexuality isn't our identity, then that means our primary sense of worth is not contingent upon romantic or sexual fulfillment. For where in the Bible... Where in the Bible are we told that our purpose and our identity and our fulfillment all hinges upon what we can do with our private parts? Go read 1 Corinthians 7. I promise it says the exact opposite. Nowhere, nowhere are we defined by what we do with our sexuality. And that's amazing news because the most fully human person, the most complete human person to ever have lived, right? Jesus Christ, he never married. He never entered into a romantic relationship. He never had sex. And so to insist these things are intrinsic to our own human fulfillment and worth is to say that Jesus is subhuman. And that's a ridiculous thing to say. If the world's guilty, though, of making an idol about sex, I think the church is often guilty about making an idol out of heterosexuality and marriage. Because recognize the trajectory of the New Testament is actually to relativize the importance of marriage and biological kinship. I think one author summed it up well. He said, a spouse and a minivan full of kids on the way to Disney World is a sweet gift. And a terrible God. If everything in Christian community involves being married with children, we shouldn't be surprised when singleness and celibacy feel like a death sentence. 
right? The Bible's clear. Our sexuality is not our identity. So for all of us who struggle in our singleness, who struggle in our celibacy, who struggle with sexual brokenness, we can praise God that our identity is made up in something much greater, much more defining, much more significant than merely what we do with our private parts. Third thing. Third thing we must say. Happiness is found in embracing God's design, not rejecting it. Thirdly, happiness is found in embracing God's design and not rejecting it. We like to treat our bodies like they're a blank slate, like they're a canvas upon which we get to express our identity, which may explain why so many have tattoos, just as a total side note. But what's also the case is that the more contrary we can make that canvas, the more authentic our culture says we are. So this month's French edition of Vogue, you may be wondering, how in the world do you know that? I don't get it. I don't speak French. I don't read French. But I was doing work for this, this uh, sermon, and the month's French edition of Vogue features a transgender model. And in the editor's letter on this transgender model on the front cover, she says, transgender people are the ultimate rejection of conformity the sorts of icons that Vogue supports and chooses to celebrate. Which is just a good reminder that what we have in so much of the current transgender debate is nothing about science but underlying ideology. It's always good to recognize that. And yet this longing to be free of, of human conventions, this longing to be free of biological limitations, you've got to know that longing is not new. That longing has deep ancient roots, not just in heresies like Gnosticism, but those longings go all the way back to the garden, to the very first garden where Satan, what did he do? He tempted Eve to think that she could be someone else. That she could even be like God. Satan has always wanted us to find our identity elsewhere. He's always wanted us to color outside the lines. The idea that you can change who God made you to be is the very idea that Adam and Eve fell into. It's the sin they gave themselves to. So it's better to think not of our bodies as blank slates but rather as flawed masterpieces. And if you were to come to a flawed masterpiece, take your favorite artist, I don't know if it's Da Vinci or Monet or whomever it might be, you come to your favorite painting or work, and if you came to that, what would you do? You would seek to restore it. My guess is you wouldn't seek to erase it and try to recreate it. We wouldn't be saying, you know where there's that beautiful tree, I'm going to put a telephone pole. Whereas there's a barn, I'm going to put a car. That's not what we do if we come to such a piece. We don't want to replace those things. We want to bring that piece back to its original brilliance. We want to stay within the lines of the painter's design. We want others to see what the original author, painter intended us to see. The glory of it as he completed it or she completed it. And it's very much the same thing with our gender and our sexuality. Happiness will not come in suppressing the truth as we seek to suppress our gender by flooding our body with hormones or, or by amputating other perfectly healthy body parts. Each person's biological sex is a good gift of God that he gives to us at creation. Happiness comes in accepting it and fighting to live within it. And for most who deal with gender dysphoria when they're young, most will actually grow out of it naturally. According to a widely published study by Vanderbilt University, London's Portman Clinic, about 70 to 80 percent of those who report some gender dysphoria spontaneously lost those feelings after puberty. And other reports cite similar numbers, some higher numbers. And yet that won't be the case for everyone. We're broken. It's a fallen world. It won't be the case for all. But where our culture says that your psychology is your sexual identity. That's what they're saying. Your, your cult, culture says psychology is your sexual identity, and you've got to let your body be conformed to that. 
But the Bible says your body is your sexual identity and let your mind be conformed to that. Gives the opposite counsel to us. And this isn't always easy. It's not. But we trust the God who made us, the God who knows what is best. All of us in our own ways have to fight against who we want to be. So we can be who God has made us to be. All of us have that fight in us. To quote Steinbeck, there is more beauty in the truth, even if it's a dreadful beauty. There is more beauty in the truth, even if it is a dreadful beauty. One of you, knowing my love for Steinbeck, sent me that quote, and I think it perfectly captures how we should be approaching our struggle with how God has created us and made us, to embrace the truth of it. So repentance is not just what LGBT people must embrace. Repentance is what all Christians embrace. All of us, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, all of us in some ways have to say no. No to the deepest sense of who we want to be so that we can say yes to who God has made us to be. All of us have to do that. So the answer is not to fix what went wrong at our first birth. The answer, the Bible says, is we need a new birth. We need a new birth. And that leads us to the last and final thing I want us to say. Fourthly, to invert God's design is serious but not inescapable. To invert God's design is serious but it's not inescapable. We read from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. I read from that earlier. How neither the sexually immoral nor the adulterers nor those who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. But do you remember how those verses close? Verse 11. And such were some of you. Of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So however ingrained a person's patterns of behavior might be, they are not inescapable. The power of the gospel is always the power to bring change. Change from the inside. And while temptations and struggles may linger, we can be made new in such a way that once defined us, and those things that once defined us, defined us no longer. They define us no longer. And my friends, whether or not you are gay or straight, cisgender, which means you just identify with your biological sex, like cisgender, transgender, like that is, that is fantastic news for all of us. But the Bible brings, the gospel brought about through the Holy Spirit brings that kind of change to all of us so that we're not defined merely by our desires. Because here's the thing, listen, we can, we can change our body's appearance so we can change the, the, the what of our sex, the who we have sex with, but none of that will finally deliver us. The only answer to the brokenness of our own bodies and desires, the only answer to that brokenness is the brokenness of another body. It's the only answer. You want to talk about the ultimate form of dysphoria, it's that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. You want to talk about someone who knew what it was like to be trapped in the wrong body. It was Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Right? We're all sexually broken. We're not right. None of us are because the world's not right. And yet, hope is never found in rejecting God and His Word, but embracing Him. For God's compassion, His commitment, it knows no boundaries. In love, He sent His only Son to earth to walk amongst us, to live amongst us. He experienced our pain, our temptations. He, above all, knows brokenness. He knows, Jesus knows what it's like to be born and feel like an exile from birth. 
right? One who's hated, one who's hunted. He knew that intimately, and yet he pursued us still, even when it would take him to the cross, where he would die as a substitute for sinners, for all of those who would turn from their sin, who would trust God's word and not their own desires, believe it was right, repent of their sin, and trust in Christ. Those are for whom Christ died, and Christ is the one that can renew them, can deliver them from that brokenness. As he was resurrected to newness of life, so can you. Friend, if you've walked in, I want you to know, first and foremost, what we Christians believe about the gospel, and that the gospel to bring change is a gospel offer to all, and that Jesus would have you if you would repent of your sins and trust in him. And I'm not promising it will be easy, but it is always good. Friends, that's the good news of Christianity. You are so much more than your sexuality. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God works to restore that brokenness, to remake you into his image and make you an heir, a child of the king the good news of the gospel for repentant prodigal sons. This good news for repentant prodigal sons and daughters, it's for all. And especially those who look in the mirror and have trouble figuring out which is which. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. When it confronts us, we pray that we would humble ourselves before it, that we would seek it, search it, to know it, to understand it, to trust that we understand you as we understand your word. God, we pray as individuals that we would seek to live according to that word, that we would lean on one another as you call us to. God, we pray as a church that we would have both that clarity of conviction and yet compassion that would mean as much as our positions may be loathed, they can't loathe us as people. Oh God, we pray that those who would reject the gospel would nonetheless see something of the good deeds and the love within this body, and that even before you are appearing, they might change. They might come to a change of heart, and that you might work in them. Oh God, use UBC in that way, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.